Titus chapter 2, in the series Sin and Judgment. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things, Show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Amen. In Titus 2, verses 1 to 10, we have what is known as domestic exhortations or domestic instructions, household instructions. That is how we ought to relate to one another in the family, in the Christian family. That is the men, the women with their children, the young men in the family, and even slaves. How slaves should relate to their masters. These are household exhortations. This is where, in the microcosm, in the day-to-day -day life, we find out who is living righteously and who's living unrighteously, who's living in sin and who's not living in sin. Because in close proximity, we are able to observe one another and know what is actually happening in our daily life. That's in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. There are similar sections throughout the Bible and throughout the New Testament that have to deal with how husbands and wives, children, masters and slaves treat each other. This is one such section. Then he turns to a general exhortation in verses 11 to 15. A general exhortation on how we ought to be responding to the grace of God in our life. What the grace of God intends to accomplish in our life. This is a general exhortation, verses 11 to to 15. And actually, verse 15 may stand alone in terms of, after having said what he has just explained in verses 1 to 14, it is very easy, very tempting for the pastor to shy away from these subjects, to shy away from the confrontation or the reproving, dealing with sin 
in the local body. It's very easy for him to do it, and it's very easy for the people to rise up against him and chafe at what he says, scoff at what he says, ridicule him, and even demean him and condemn him for saying whatever he might say in regards to verses 1 to 14. This is why the Apostle Paul tells Titus in verse 15, don't shrink away from this, but maintain it, speak about it, exhort it, reprove, and let no one disregard you. It has to be done, it should be done in every local church. Now let's return and see more carefully what he says in verses 1, let's do first verses 1 to 5, which treats older men, younger men, by implication, younger men, and then older women and younger women in verses 1 to 5. Verse 1, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. But as for you, you Titus, the Apostle Paul, the aged, is writing to Titus, the young man, young in the faith and young in age, young compared to the Apostle Paul. Titus is included in the young men in verses 6 to 8 because when he addresses the young men, he says in verse 7, show yourself. Show yourself to be an example. This means that both Timothy and Titus were young pastors relative to the age of the Apostle Paul in the ministry and perhaps even relative to the age of the majority of the people in their local churches. This is the way Titus should be, but as for you. Why? In contrast to what he has explained in chapter 1, verses 10 to 16, because there are many rebellious men, 110, many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers. They upset whole families, verse 11. They are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, verse 12 says. And actually also twice he warns them in verses 7 and 11 that these men are after sordid gain. They want filthy, dirty money. They're not in it for the true and right reasons in the ministry for the right reasons. They want the money. They want the fame and the fortune that leads to their own fun. That's what they want. They don't want soundness in doctrine, verse 9. They don't want soundness in the faith, verse 13. No, they pay attention to false doctrine that lead men into ruin and destruction. They turn away from the truth, verse 14 says but not the true believer. They want, in verse 16, to profess to know God, but not live their life accordingly, have their deeds deny God. They claim to be with God, claim to know God, claim to love God, claim to fear God, claim to honor God, claim to walk with God, but their deeds deny their assertions. In contrast, he says, but as for you, Titus, you are a pastor, you are a preacher, you are an elder in the, the local church, you need to be different. You must be different. And in what way? 
speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Speak everything in relation to sound doctrine, not unsound doctrine. Sound doctrine, the word sound in this context, has to do with that which is wholesome, that which is healthy, not that which is going to lead to the ruin of the soul, or the ruin in contrast or in comparison, the body. We don't consume things that are going to lead to poisoning the body. And if we don't eat things that are poisoning to the body, we shouldn't eat things that are poisoning to the soul. They should be sound doctrine, healthy, wholesome doctrine. Further, the doctrine, notice he mentions in verse 1, he mentions doctrine again in verse 7 and verse 10. 7 and 10. In this chapter, primarily, he's dealing with that which is ethical, that which has to do with practical matters, that which is moral, how we treat one another. M many times people say, well, I believe in Jesus and I don't need to know doctrine. I believe in Jesus, I don't need to know doctrine. Well, doctrine includes how we live, how we use our lips, how we live our life. Doctrine includes that. It's not only theological, but even the theological we must know, because he will speak about that in verses 11 to 14. The theological is also necessary in terms of sound doctrine. Doctrine is essentially a, another word, a synonym for instruction or teaching instruction or teaching. That's what the word doctrine means. It doesn't mean that which is theological only, but also that which is moral and practical. It includes that. And in the Bible, it has nothing to do with speculation, mythology, fables, legends. Doctrine in the Bible has nothing to do with those things. It rejects all that. So the pastor should speak the things fitting or sound doctrine. Verse 2. It includes this. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. The old men in the church need to be temperate, which means what? They must have moderation. It's another word for self-control. They're not indulgent. They don't let their senses control them and make them get out of control, but they have temperance, moderation, self-control. Old men should be that way. They have had a long life to live, and the Christian life to live, and time to control their senses, to control their desires. It should be under control. Also dignified. Dignified. That which is respectable in the sight of all. Living a life of dignity. Not of dishonor, not of defamation, but dignified life. They should be respectable men. They should be also sensible. Sensible not only in mind, but also in body. Their mind should not be erratic, 
should not be fickle, should not be double-minded, should not be illogical, should not be acting like an insane or madman. The mind should not be that way, but also the bodily senses, the five senses, also should be under control so that they are used in a reasonable manner. Sound in faith. Sound in faith. Whatever he believes, whatever he confesses that is in accordance with the faith, must be in harmony with sound doctrine. He cannot be claiming the faith, but then have bizarre beliefs. He cannot claim the faith and then have beliefs that contradict Scripture. They have to be sound. Also, sound in love. He should love God and love his neighbor. Love God and love his brother. He should love his neighbor as himself. If he does not have soundness in his love of God and love of neighbor, then he's not being sanctified. He's not growing as he should. Remember, when we say sound in faith, sound in love, we're talking about how the Bible means it, not how common Christian culture means it, not how an individual perceives in his own mind, doing that which is right in his own eyes. That should not be the case. It should be the way the Bible defines faith, the way the Bible explains love and perseverance. Yes, toward the end of life, those men who have been living a long Christian life, when they're, when they're 70, 80, 90 years old, when they get old, it may be possible for them to give up, to become lax, to say, well, I've worked hard enough. That shouldn't be the case. The Apostle Paul was faithful until the very end. Moses was faithful until the very end of his life. And Moses lived to be 120 years old. Joseph was faithful until the very end of his life. Joshua was faithful until the very end of his life. But not everyone was that way. For example, Solomon, when he grew old, it says his wives turned his heart away. Finally he did repent, but in his old age, he became weak, and he didn't persevere as strongly as he should have, because it says in 1 Kings 11, 4, his wives turned his heart away. That shouldn't happen to any man. Men should be faithful, persevering, maintaining the faith, and even growing in faith with great zeal for the things of God until the very end. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Now the women, verse 3. The women in verses 3 to 5. 
older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior. Reverent in behavior. That would be a way for him to be explaining that they should be temperate, dignified, sensible, so forth. They should be reverent. They shouldn't be disrespectful in other ways. They cannot be acting on their own whims, their own fancies, and being disrespectful to people, and especially to their husbands. Not malicious gossips. Not malicious gossips. 1 Timothy 3.11 1 Timothy 3.11 Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. There is a tendency, this is why it's repeated in 1 Timothy and here, in relation to women, that there is a tendency for them to be malicious gossips. And it's not just old women, but even young women. As it says in 1 Timothy 5.13, 1 Timothy 5.13, young widows, it says of them. And at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. That should not be the case. There should be an edifying, wholesome use of the tongue. Further, not enslaved to much wine. Both men and women, as he said in 1 Timothy 3 about the elders and deacons, they should also not be enslaved to much wine. 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, not addicted to wine. 1 Timothy 3.3. 3. 1 Timothy 3.8, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain. The same way the women. They must have self-control in their consumption of wine. Further, they should be teaching what is good. Teaching what is good. We have here now the teaching role of women. The teaching role of women. In what context in our passage? In the context of the household and context with other women. The old women with the young women. Because he's going to say that in verse 4. He's going to mention the young women in verse 4. And what is it that the old women are teaching? What is good? They are teaching one another... They are teaching the young women. They're teaching their children. Teaching what is good. And where are we going to find what is good? In the good word of God. They must know the good word of God and teach it. Just as in 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, Timothy's own mother and grandmother were equipped in the word of God to teach the word of God. It says... 2 Timothy 1.5 For I am mindful 
of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. And it includes the word as we find in 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. This is what they taught Timothy as a child. 2 Timothy 3, 14. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The man of God, the minister of God, he is well equipped, but who else in the household is well equipped? Timothy's mother and grandmother. If we know that from Acts chapter 16, verses 1 and following, that his father was a Greek and an unbeliever. So his father was not equipped to teach him, but his mother was a believer and his grandmother was a believer, and they were equipped. Teaching what is good. This assumes they are reading the Bible, studying the Bible, memorizing the Bible, and loving what is there, and whatever they love, it bubbles over, and they are equipped to teach other women and their children. This is better than Sunday school. Sunday school is not taught in the Bible. There is no example of it in the Bible. Sunday school is typically about 30 minutes to 45 minutes of some superficial lesson taught to children one day a week. A superficial lesson taught one day a week by a stranger. Some Then that stranger may become a familiar face and a friend, but often in mega churches they remain strangers. But we have, the Bible has, something better. The Bible has daily school. Daily Bible school by the parents to teach their children. And that can be 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, or however long they have, depending on their circumstances, depending on the day, depending on the events of their life, depending on the ages of their children, depending on how responsive the children are and whether they are inquisitive and want to know more and keep asking questions. They can go on and on and get personal parental instruction, which is much better than a volunteer in the church or a hireling in the church. It's much better. That's the biblical method. Chapter 2, Titus 2, verse 4. When the old women are equipped in both their character and their instruction, when they are equipped, what should they do? Verse 4. That they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. The young women ought to be encouraged to love their husbands, to love their children. In what ways? 
in the ways the Bible describes. Not in the way the world describes. Not in the way their best friends describe. Not the way their colleagues describe. Not the way their classmates describe. Not the way anybody else describes. But the way the Bible describes. According to the wisdom in the mind and in the heart and in, on the lips of the older women who are teaching the young women the Word of God, what the Word of God has to say about how to love their husbands, what the Word of God has to say about how to love their children, not the way the world does. If they follow the ways of the world, follow the carnality of their sinful nature, then that's all sin. This is not sin. What else does it uh, entail? Verse 5. To be sensible. Just as the old men in verse 2 were to be sensible, here we find in verse 5, the older women are to teach the younger women. And we also see in verse 6, the young men are to be sensible. Nobody, both in mind and in body, should be out of control. Erratic, insane, nonsensical in what he does. They all, all of us must be sensible. And therefore, taught to be sensible. Next, pure. Pure. Purity in doctrine, purity in life. It's easy to be polluted, to be defiled, by mixing some things biblical, some things extra-biblical, some things scriptural, some things cultural. But that shouldn't happen. Workers at home. Workers at home. The culture, the world, especially militates against this doctrine. They teach that women who work at home, homemakers, who used to be called housewives or homemakers, even homemaker is not used these days, but homemaker, housewives, as the Bible says, workers at home. Home workers. Can we say that? That wives, young women, should be home workers? Home workers is ideal. Home workers is godly. Home workers is what God has ordained for them to be. Not careerists. Not trying to make millions and millions not making a name for themselves, that's not what they should be. Not boosting and pampering their egos, that's not what women should be doing. They should be homeworkers. Kind. Kind. It's interesting, they, it says kind, because in the household, whenever it is just husband and wife, it is sometimes the husband, but the scripture is pointing out here that the wife should be kind. Kind to husband, kind to children. Not lashing out, not irritable, not easily provoked, but kind in tone, kind in talk. 
being subject to their own husbands. This is where the kindness needs to be employed. Because when the husband, when the husband is saying otherwise, when the husband is giving direction, when the husband is teaching the Word of God, when the husband is trying to lead according to the Word of God, it is easy for the wife to kick and scream against it, to lash out against it, and to be unkind toward her husband. Instead, she should be subject to their own husbands. They should be. Subject meaning, meaning to submit, to obey. If what he's saying isn't sin, is not evil, is in accordance with Scripture, harmonizes with the Bible, then why complain about it and not be in subject, in subjection to the husband? If we are, if women are, the wives are, then what happens? Verse 5. That the word of God may not be dishonored. When the wife or young women misbehave like this, and even older women misbehave, what is happening when the older men misbehave? The word of God may be dishonored. Because people will see, family will see, friends will see, neighbors will see, strangers will see. And they'll say, that's not the way Christians are to behave. That's not the way a Christian woman is supposed to behave. And then they will ridicule, malign, the word of God. It won't be honored. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 34. Let your light shine in such a way that men may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, 16. But in this case, we should not. We have to be thinking wherever we go, whatever we do, relates to the honor of God. Verse, verses 6 to 8, now the young men. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. Likewise. Sometimes, the critics of the Apostle Paul, not reading carefully, but being fault finders, they are apt to accuse him of spending too much time on a given subject. They are apt to accuse him of spending too much time addressing a certain audience. They may say, like here, why did he spend so much time on women? He should have spent more time on men. Well, in other places, he and the scriptures spend more time on men. And they spend more time on children. Spend more time on masters or on slaves. The same here. We shouldn't be quick to criticize. He says likewise. So likewise, he's got an exhortation for the young men. Notice, he says here, urge. 
If we're going to nitpick, he didn't say urge in verses 1 to 5. But he certainly means it. He certainly intends it. But here in verse 6, he does say urge. Urge the young men to be sensible. It's an urgent matter. Why so? Because with young men, being strong, having lots of energy, having a fertile mind, being very creative, able to do many things, it is easy for them also to be erratic and without self-control, to indulge themselves in their senses. So he says, instead, the young men ought to be sensible. Everybody should be sensible, old and young, male or female. Verse 7, in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds. In all things, he'll return to that in verse 10, in every respect. In all things, in every respect, verses 7 and 10. Show yourself, yourself, Titus, you are an example. Why? Because he's a leader. All leaders, whether they like it or not, whether they intend it or not, are an examples of good or evil. All leaders, whether it's in business, in politics, wherever they are, even in the local church, they are examples. 1 Timothy 4.12, 1 Timothy 4.12, let look. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. An example of true believers practicing good deeds. True believers practicing good deeds. The Apostle has stressed good or good deeds in this letter. He has stressed it. Good and good deeds. Chapter 1, verse 8. Loving what is good. Loving what is good. 116. Worthless for any good deed. Chapter 2, verse 3. Teaching what is good. Our verse, verse 7. An example of good deeds. <clears throat> Chapter 2, verse 14. Zealous for good deeds. Chapter 3, verse 1. To be ready for every good deed. Chapter 3, verse 8. So that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. And also 3.14. And let our people also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, that they may not be unfruitful. The Apostle Paul is stressing what should be evident in those who have true faith. Those who have true faith will have good deeds. Chapter 2 of Titus, or the book of Titus, may be comparable to James chapter 2, 
where even James stresses good deeds or good works. They, the two of them are not contradictory, as some commentators make Paul and James to contradict. They are not. The Apostle Paul will explain the grace of God in verse 11, as he has already explained it in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. It is the grace of God that grants us faith and repentance. And when we have that true grace, granting faith and repentance for our salvation, it doesn't end there, but it continues to produce good in us. As he says here, good deeds. This is not legalism. This is not Pharisaicalism. This is not work salvation. Works righteousness. This is the true gospel. One disconnected. Two seven continues. With purity in doctrine, dignified. Purity in doctrine. Again, he's mentioning mentioning purity, as he said that the women should be pure, chapter 2, verse 5, as he said that all of us should be pure, chapter 1, verse 15, to the pure all things are pure. Here again to the young men, they should have purity in doctrine. Now, explicitly he says purity in doctrine, not simply pure, or pure, all things are pure. Purity in doctrine which means we cannot mix and match. We cannot mix and mingle some pure doctrine with some impure doctrine. We should be aware. We should be meticulous. We should be careful to know what is pure doctrine and then believe it. And not let any impure doctrine enter the pure doctrine. Is it okay to put a little bit of water in hot oil on the stove in a pot? No. It, a little bit of water will cause harm if we put it in a hot pot of oil on the stove. Correct? What if we were to bake, to bake brownies? And brownies are brown, right? The mix is brown, correct? But what if we were to mix a little bit of dirt, a little bit of mud into the brownies, or a little bit of excrement into the brownies? Doesn't that make the batch of brownies impure? Yes. And the same with the Bible and the pure doctrine we must have. We should be conscientious. We should be very careful about what is right and what is wrong. What's pure and what is impure. And not be lackadaisical, not be nonchalant about what we are believing and what others are believing. We continue with dignified. This term he has used repeatedly 
And so here again, the young men are not excluded from being dignified. Sometimes people make excuses for young men. They say boys will be boys. No, boys, boys will be boys is not in the Bible. Boys will be boys does not justify the erratic, disrespectful nature of the way many young men can be. No, they shouldn't be that way. They should be dignified. And continuing in that dignified lifestyle until they are old, according to verse 2, because old men are supposed to be dignified, both young and old. Verse 8, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. Another common malady, common sickness that's on the lips of young men is that they have a loose tongue. They have filthy tongues. They have dirty jokes on their lips. But these words, profanity, vulgarity, coarse language, cuss words, however we might describe these kinds of words and speech, should not be present in young men. They should be sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. Just because some Christians use certain words doesn't mean we should. We have to ask, what does the Bible say? Always, what does the Scripture say? Then, when we are this way, and particularly in this passage, verses 6 to 8 in this paragraph, the young men, when the young men are circumspect, when they are upright, when they are living according to what he has just said, what is the result? Verse 8, in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. That's a curious expression. That is usually overlooked. Why is it that he wants, notice it says, in order that. In order that is a conjunction introducing a clause that gives the purpose for living a godly life. What is his purpose in this context for Christian young men living a godly life? He doesn't say glorify God, which is also true. He doesn't say to edify one another, which is also true. He doesn't say many other reasons, which are also true. In this passage, he says his purpose, if we live, young men live a godly life, the purpose is in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us, to silence our enemies and put them to shame. When was the last time Christians thought that one of their roles, one of their goals in life is to shame their enemies, to shame their opponents? We are told we're supposed to love everybody all the time. We're, we're told we're supposed to practice eminent kindness to the nth degree. Well, in certain ways we are supposed to love, we are supposed to practice kindness, but 
one of our goals is to so obey God that we put our enemies to shame. 2 Thessalonians 3. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. So that he may be put to shame. That is, a disobedient man in the church, living an unruly life, when he is confronted, one of the purposes is to put him to shame. 2 Thessalonians 3.14 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 2, verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. He says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In the day of visitation, on the day of judgment, they will glorify God because they had observed our good behavior. If they glorify God for our good behavior, they are in the company of the wicked, being put to shame before God at the throne of God, as they glorify God because of how they saw us live. 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 3, 16. 1 Peter 3, 16. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. When they revile, when they mock our good behavior, they will be put to shame. One day. Maybe now, but certainly later. Titus 2 9 to 10. Titus 2, 9 to 10. Slaves. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, by showing all good faith that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. The slaves are to be subject to their own masters in everything. Slaves, especially Christian slaves, with a Christian master, might say, Ah, he's a Christian, so it doesn't matter if I obey or not. It doesn't matter whether I'm lazy or not. It doesn't matter. I'll do whatever I want to do. He's not here. I'll rest. After all, God's grace is sufficient. He's going to forgive me. That attitude should not be in the slaves. They should be subject, obedient to their own masters, in Everything, in everything. Remember we saw in verse 7, young men in all things. Now verse 9, slaves in everything. Verse 10 also, in every respect. Now he doesn't mean that only slaves are to be this way. Children should be that way with their parents, 
Wives should be that way with their husbands. And even slaves implies men, when they are in the workplace, they should be that way with their employers. They should be in all things, in everything, in every respect. And for that matter, all Christians in the Christian life should be so careful, so meticulous in everything he does. Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4.15 says about all of us as we grow in the faith. Ephesians 4.15, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. It says, all aspects into Him. Not some, not most, not whatever it's convenient, not whatever we like. It says all. It says similarly in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. Colossians 1.10 So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He says, all respects, every good work. Those who scoff at meticulous obedience say that we micromanage. But the Bible is saying this. So they are scoffing at God and the Word of God. They are scoffing at holiness. They are scoffing at growth. They are scoffing at perfection. When Christ said in Matthew 5.48, Therefore you are to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. That should not be the case with any of us. Further, to be well-pleasing, it says in verse 9. Well-pleasing. A desire to please those who are above us. An eager attitude to authority. Not rebellion, not insubordination, but an eager, heartfelt attitude toward our superiors. Well-pleasing. The opposite is being argumentative. Being argumentative. Picking fights, nitpicking what our superiors, what our employers, what our masters are saying. Well, you didn't say it that way before. Why are you telling me that way now? Well, you know what he meant by it, so why are you saying that back to him? There's no need to say that. Just do it. Not pilfering, verse 10. To pilfer, to steal, to be a thief. When no one's watching, are we stealing? If we steal, we are disobeying the commandments of God. You shall not steal, the Eighth Commandment says. The opposite of theft is Showing all good faith. 
to show good faith. And he says, all good faith. Do those who give us a charge, who give us responsibility, who give us access to valuable objects, who give us access to money or lots of money, do they trust us? Because he says we should be showing all good faith. We should be trustworthy people. If we are untrustworthy, we are pilfering. Now, if we behave like this, what will we do? That they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Now we are back to the honor of God. He says, adorn. If in day-to-day -day life, one wears dirty, stinky, torn and tattered clothing, do we say that the man or the woman is well adorned? No. So our behavior is like proper clothing, clean, neat clothing upon us. That's the way we should be adorned by our good deeds in every respect. We cannot and should not tolerate any kind of reproach on the name of Christ. 11 to 14. 11 to 14. He turns now to explain the connection between the theological and the moral. The connection between what God has done in our life to save us and what God is continuing to do in our life to sanctify us. That's 11 to 14. What has he done? Verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The grace of God has appeared. What grace does he mean here? Does he mean universal grace? For universal salvation? No. That means everybody is saved, whether they believe in Christ or not, including atheists and Hindus and Buddhists who never even hear of Christ. They're all saved. Is that the grace he's talking about? Because he does say, oh man. No. Is he talking about the grace of God as prevenient grace? Prevenient means grace that comes before. A grace that comes in advance. That is, according to free will Arminian theology and Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism, according to proponents of those heretical beliefs, they believe in the doctrine of prevenient grace. They say, since Jesus died for every person, because God loves every person in the world, when he died on the cross, God instantly and automatically deposited some grace in every human heart. He deposited, he granted faith or, or grace that could produce faith 
in every human heart. So every human, here and abroad, every human with access to the Scripture, with access to the Word of Christ, and those who don't have access, God has deposited some grace, this prevenient grace to every one of them. So then, all they must do is act on their free will to cooperate with the grace of God to be saved. Whether they believe in Christ or do the best they can in their own religion and with the knowledge that they have of religious things. Is that the grace he means here? No. He cannot mean that. There are many scriptures we could consult, but for our study will remain within the context. Because they distort the context. Those who believe in false grace distort this context. Uh, a further distortion of grace would be cheap grace. That God granted us grace, so we're saved, we have eternal life, our sins are forgiven, and it doesn't matter how we live now. We can still live in our sins and even obtain new sins, pursue new sins, and we're all going to heaven. I say I'm a Christian, I confess I'm a Christian, I profess I'm a Christian, I pray to be a Christian, I've been baptized, my name is Christian, so therefore I'm going to heaven. That's not grace either, that's cheap grace, and actually it's poisonous and an abomination to God. And it's blasphemy against God. Cheap grace is an abomination and blasphemy against the name of God. He doesn't mean it in any of those ways. He says it has appeared. If it has appeared, it has appeared in the world. So then how did it appear in the world? In two ways. According to Acts 20:24, 20, the gospel is called the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel of the grace of God. Acts 20:24. 20, Chapter 20, verse 24. The grace of God. That's one way. According to Hebrews 10:29 and also Zechariah 12:10. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Grace. The Spirit of Grace. So then, the Spirit of Grace uses the Word of Grace, the Gospel of Grace, whenever the Gospel is preached, to save those who are ordained or appointed to receive this grace to be actually saved. To be definitely saved. Not those who might be saved, potentially, possibly be saved, but those who will actually be saved. That's the meaning here because it says it has appeared, it has been brought, and salvation has been accomplished. But salvation is not accomplished in every individual. And salvation is absent in those who profess Christ, and yet their deeds deny Him, as He says in 1.16. They are detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. 
Salvation hasn't come to them. So that is the meaning of all men. Those who actually have heard the word of grace and in whose heart the spirit of grace has used that word to change them, to cause them to be born again. 1 Peter 1, 1-3. Bringing the rebirth in them by this means. The spirit of grace using the word of grace to bring salvation to them. To actually bring it. Not dangle it in front of them, just waiting for them to exercise their free will, but actually doing it in them. That's what he means by all men. Now we might say, why does he say all men? Well, in the context, verses 1 to 10, he mentioned old and young men, old and young women. He mentioned also slaves. So he's saying, this grace of God to save is not restricted to only men, or only old men, or to women, or only young women, or old women, or only to slaves, or to free men, not slaves, or to slaves and not free men. But it's meant for all types of men, all kinds of men, whether rich or poor, young or old, male or female, and even whether Jew or Gentile. It's meant for all men, meaning all sorts or all kinds of men. Verse, verses 12 to 14 makes it more clear, if it's not clear already. Because in 12 he says, instructing us, who are the us? The church, the elect. The elect according to chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Because he says, chosen of God, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. For the faith of those chosen of God. Not we chose him, but God chose us, whom God chose. Chapter 2, verse 13 says, Looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Who is looking for the blessed hope? Only those who have heard the word of grace and in whose heart the spirit of grace has worked. The rest of the world and even superficial Christianity is not looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. They're not looking for that. They are indulging the flesh in the world. But he who has this hope fixed on him is purifying himself just as he is pure. 1 John 3, 3. Chapter 2, 14 says, Who gave himself for us, who are the us, the church, the elect, that he might redeem us. Everyone isn't redeemed, but we are redeemed. 2, 14. A people for his own possession. Does God own every person for all eternity in heaven? No, because as Jesus said in Matthew 7, 23, he's going to say to those who practice lawlessness, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. Matthew 7, 23. So we all don't belong to Christ. 
Only some of us are his own possession. And lastly, verse 14, zealous for good deeds, the elect who are truly saved, who truly have that grace working in them, they are zealous for good deeds, but not the reprobate, not the wicked, not the fake believers. They are not zealous for good deeds, biblically defined. So then, the elect. We are not only saved by God's grace, but God's grace continues to work in us as true grace, as powerful grace, as a mighty grace working in us to sanctify us, to purify us, so that we grow in godliness. We reject the world and embrace heaven simultaneously. Verse 12, instructing us, God's grace instructs us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires. We deny ungodliness and worldly deny, desires. We do not succumb in the sense of indulge in them. We do not bask in them. We do not revel in them. We don't make excuses and say, well, that's just my personality. That's just the way I was brought up. That's just my culture. That's just my way of looking at things. Not everybody is the same. Nobody's perfect. Leave me alone. You think you're right on everything. No. It says we are supposed to deny ungodliness, deny worldly desires, deny them. Remember even Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And in the opposite way, to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age. Christians are characterized, generally speaking, to be sensible, righteous, and godly. Our doctrine is the doctrine conforming to godliness. 1 Timothy 6, 3-5. We live in a godly manner in the present age. Not just in heaven, but we start now. Meantime, we are looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. We're looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. When He returns, we're going to be like Him, for we shall see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as he is pure. 1 John 3, 2 to 3. Even here, it's the same. Also, verse 13 is a clear statement on the deity of Jesus Christ. These terms, great God, our great God and Savior, both terms are applied to Christ Jesus. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that the Father is going to become visible upon the return of the Son. Only the Son is becoming visible in the clouds or in the air, and every eye shall see Him. 
even those who pierced him. Revelation 1, 8. So we're going to see him. We're going to see Christ. Grammatically in the original language, and contextually here, and contextually in the rest of the Bible, Christ is returning, and Christ is our great God and Savior. He did what for us? His identity is in verse 13. His ministry is in verse 14. Who gave himself for us. For us, the church, or his sheep. John 10, John 10 verses 11 to 18. He gave himself for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. Gave himself for us. For a reason. That he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Speaking of every again, remember he said all things in verse 7. He said in everything in verse 9. In verse 10 he says in every respect. And in verse 14, every lawless deed. God himself is meticulous. And if we're going to use the word in a godly, righteous manner, God micromanages. Because he wants every log to be removed from our eyes, and even every speck to be removed from our eyes. Matthew 7, 1. This is how detestable it is when people say that we shouldn't be conscientious or preoccupied about obedience in every area of life. The Bible does. Because we are either lawless or law-abiding. We are either law-keepers or law-breakers. And then God is in the business of purification, which also stresses as we've seen this word purity, or purity in doctrine, or pure, we've seen this word since chapter 1, verse 15. And now again, 2.14. Purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. He's in the business of removing impurities from us. Just like when gold and silver is in hot very, very hot fire. The impurities are separated to make pure gold. A people for his own possession. If we belong to him, and he is our savior, if we belong to him, and our name is associated with his name, his name is associated with us, we ought to be a treasured possession zealous for good deeds. So zealous that we engage in good deeds and meet pressing needs. 3.14 And lastly, the pastor. Verse 15. The pastor, he will be reluctant, as it says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Timothy the Apostle Paul anticipates the reluctance 
the timidity, the fearfulness of Timothy, and says, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. When a pastor is timid, it's not coming from God. When he's fearful, intimidated, it's not coming from God. It's coming from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Ephesians 2, 1-3. It's earthly, natural, and demonic, according to James 3, 15. It's earthly, natural, demonic wisdom. It's not coming from God. God doesn't give us a spirit of timidity. He gives us a spirit of courage. Therefore, the spirit of courage will speak, exhort, and reprove with all authority. Not innate authority in the man. The man himself has no authority. Where is it derived? Where does it originate? It comes from the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. Chapter 1, verse 9. It is the apostolic doctrine, which previous to that was the Christological doctrine. And before Christ's incarnation, it was the prophetic doctrine. So the prophetic doctrine matches the Christological doctrine during his incarnation, which matches the apostolic doctrine. All of them are in harmony, and all are inspired by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1, 16-21. Therefore, we have all authority, if it harmonizes with Holy Scripture. Let no one disregard you. Obviously, people will disregard the pastor. That will happen in actuality. But when he says, let no one disregard you, firstly, in the pastor's own mind and in his heart and values, he shouldn't base his decisions, his preaching, his actions, his advice based on whether people are going to disregard. That's number one. Number two, when they do disregard, then whatever abilities one has as a pastor and as a local church, it needs to be confronted. So that the disregard does not persist. And that means what? Eventually, church discipline. Matthew 18, 15-20. Eventually, those who disregard the truth need to be confronted so that it does not continue in the church. Why? Because a little leaven leavens a whole lump of dough. 1 Timothy 5, I'm so sorry, 1 Corinthians 5, Verses 6 to 8. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.